Listen up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul Buckle up, get ready, we're not gonna sit back and wait And allow ourselves and each other to lose control of our faith There'll be no sacrifice Once again, we thank Keb Moe for bringing us in with Stand Up and Be Strong. And from Chicago, it's a Live from the Heartland show with Katie Hogan and Michael James. Uh, we welcome you to what we have been calling Heartland at Home during the time of the pandemic. This would be number 60 for the week of July 10th. We'll let you know when we're back in the studio. Today, we have a jam-packed show. We're going to have our friend Brian Meir reporting on Brazil. We're going to have... Tom Michael, a super runner and PBS manager at Boise State Radio, talking about all things Idaho and running some long distances. And we're going to be joined from Delaware with Gordon Thompson, giving us an Olympic update. So we got a lot to talk about. Stay tuned. You're going to have a good time. Good morning, Katie. Hi, Michael. We're going to skip the good things today simply because of the packed show. But we are going to notice that uh, this week, there was a lot of reporting on U.S. out of Afghanistan, and for many of us watching it, it's a troubling story. We don't know if it's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, we're going to look into that more in the future and what it means for us all. Uh, we'd like to call everyone's attention to a very serious article that appeared on Thursday in the New York Times about uh, the battle between Chicago and the lake. And it, it is, gives a lot of detailed history about uh, water in Chicago, the lake, uh, the, the, you know, the Great Lakes and the Mississippi uh, Valley water systems and how they were connected and the challenges that face us as global warming uh, raises the lake too high and sometimes too low. It's not going away. We all need to pay attention. And it's really a great read because you'll learn an awful lot. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, what, what it does talk about is the, the between the river and the lake, there's a problem of levels. And when one goes yeah. up, the other goes down. And if, if the river goes up and starts flowing into the lake where it, the way it used to, our, our garbage water will be in the lake. So a couple of, couple of follow-ups on last week's show. Uh, we, uh, we couldn't come up with the name of a great new restaurant over at Pratt & Sheridan. Uh, we've been there and enjoyed it. It's called Samia's Latin Kitchen. And uh, we're sorry we didn't name it correctly back then, but we're telling the, the masses now. And last week, our guest Ray Long from the Tribune really uh, gave us a nice little segment on good things to see in Illinois. And what it reminded me is of a time I was coming back from South by Southwest on 55, which I think used to be 66 in the old days. And I went by a little town or into a little town called Mount Olive. And uh, there you will find a beautiful grave site of Mother Jones, the great labor organizer who fought for the rights of the laboring masses. And she's buried there uh, along with other miners from a, a strike, I think it was called the, I'm blocking the name of, the Battle of Verdun. Um, and there are two uh, other statues right by hers, and one is of a coal miner and one is of another kind of worker. It's a kind of a moving site. It's a nice little town. Check it out. So that's our labor report for today, you guys. Um, another just factoid or simple, uh, this week was um, a week of that in, uh, celebrated the 75th wedding anniversary of Rosalind and Jimmy Carter. 
So they were on TV quite a bit. They were interviewed by uh, uh, Judy Woodruff. Um, and they're, it, just seeing them reminds me of a gentler, uh, less uh, partisan, awful time. Uh, strange, interesting fact, Jimmy Carter was the first US president born in a hospital. I thought that was interesting that late in the day that by 1976, we had not had that. Um, and also in presidential work, President Biden um, did a strategic visit to Illinois this week. Um, strategic in that he appeared in the only county that actually voted twice for Trump. And also because he was appearing with two of our um, first time and once reelected uh, Congress people, uh, Sean Caston and Lauren Underwood, who are stars in the Congress, but who also need your help to get reelected. Um, so yeah. Uh, on the legal front, the Supreme Court uh, really seems to be moving in a more conservative direction as people had expected. They've done it again. This last Thursday, the conservative majority, I think it was six to three, upheld two pretty racist voting restrictions in Arizona, making it clear that the court is now on the side of the grand old party, the Republicans, in its ongoing assault on democracy. Some people think the Supreme Court should be expanded. Other people think, no, we got to wait it out. Uh, this is something that people need to pay attention to. And for those who in the past have said, it doesn't matter if I vote or not, it clearly does matter. We really need to be ready for the 2022 elections and get all the Democrats we can in to get keep the House and to take the Senate in a much more bigger and meaningful way. Well, since you brought it up, I'm going to shoot this in here. Um, Serious, elect serious electoral activists with 4th of July behind us now are in full campaign mode facing this all important uh, midterms of 2022. Council for a Livable World does a really good job always of keeping lists of who's what and where in our electoral politics. And they have a list of the key Senate races um, for top prospects for Dem pickups, Democratic pickups. And that would be in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, two senators retiring there, Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa, Missouri, Florida. That's like seven states that we could work to get a senator. Same time, we've got Senate senators at risk. They also list those, Mark Kelly in Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Maggie Hassan in North uh, New Hampshire, sorry if I said that name wrong, and Catherine Cortez Mosto in Nevada. So a lot of work to do on the electoral front. People should start picking their fights and getting into them. Okay, on the gun violence front, over the holiday weekend, there were 100 shootings in Chicago. They resulted in 17 deaths and now the now ritual appearance of the mayor and the superintendent of police are out there bashing the courts and bail reform. Uh, Katie, you read a serious story in WBEZ on it. You want to add anything? Yeah, to I would just say that that BEZ um, did a great article on, on uh, and now I don't even have the title of the article, but uh, the article included a response to the, the continual bashing of uh, courts and, uh, and the bail reform as reasons for this gun violence, um, 
we've got to stop pointing fingers. Tom, uh, Tom Evans, Tim Evans. Is, Tim Evans, who is the head of the circuit court judges, uh, put in this um, BEZ article, actual facts and figures, um, challenging that. They, and when the police are asked, tell us how many of these um, people who are out on bail are involved in these shootings, they come up with one or two maybe examples of people who were on ankle bracelets who were all up in trouble. We have to do something different, clearly, really, really different than we have. I would recommend folks check out the BEZ article from uh, this past week. Okay, Katie, uh, you know, and I did a lot of running together back in our earlier days and uh, we ran along the lake and we ran along some wonderful tracks. We also knew that a lot of runners, uh, you know, in high school, weren't able to find a place to run in the winter. They would run indoors. Tell us about a new addition to Chicago's athletic facilities. I'm just so pleased that that something uh, happened this week that is good news we can tell you. Um, the new place uh, that just opened this week is at Gately Park, which in my, in my youth we called Gately Stadium, um, where we would see Friday night football in the fall. It was good memories, but my, my good buddy, Conrad Wuerl, who passed last year of COVID, who was a lifelong community activist and one of the founders of the inner city studies program of Northeastern Illinois, has an indoor track named after him, that after he, as, an, as a track star himself in high school, ran the hallways of Hyde Park High, Hyde Park Academy, as it were, uh, because there was no indoor track on the south side for him to use. Um, now there is, there's, it's a 3,500 seat uh, situation. They're a sharing the spiffy space. spiffy new space, a spiffy new space. A very spiffy space. And they're sharing it with After School Matters, which is going to make this their, their, uh, their primary location now, or their, their uh, headquarters, rather. After School Matters has been one of the working programs for the last couple of decades on our uh, south and west sides, also on the north side when we had it. So yay to the south side and the new Conrad World track. And all the future Olympians that will come out of Chicago. Amen to that. Okay, on another front, speaking of health, as, as vaccinations go, we're still Who under- Who speaking of health? Who was speaking of health just then? Well, running and stuff. Oh, okay. That's what I meant, you know, staying in fit and healthy and enthused and positive. But uh, on a serious note here, as vaccinations go, we're still under what we need to safely enter, number of vaccine, vaccinations delivered in order to enter the upcoming indoor season. Uh, there's really an income gap on vaccination, who gets them and where. WBEZ reported this week that the gap between, say, Northbrook, which is 81% fully vaxxed, and Dixmore in the south suburbs, which is 13% vaxxed, this is not good. What do you need to get vaccinated is what we've got to say to people. Uh, there's a lot of criticism of efforts by the president going to door to door by the right wing, calling it fascists and stuff. But uh, we got a problem nationally and in Chicago where a lot of people are vaccinated. We still have to do a lot more work. Amen to that. So we're going to take a break as we bring in our first guest. Um, you are listening to Live from the Heartland, the Heartland at Home edition on WLUW 88.7 FM. Chicago Sound Alliance. Stay tuned for our first guest, 
um, which will be Brian Muir, after a little bit of Brazilian music by De Proposito. Você me deixou na loucura Sem ter como te localizar Dessa vez você foi imatura Por mensagem é fácil terminar Isso ia a cabeça, cuidado com a rua Se eu te machuquei, tentar me perdoar Right, a little Brazilian songs. Oh my gosh. It reminds me of Samba in, in Salvador, but that was so long ago, like another lifetime. Welcome back, Brian Muir. Um, so glad to have you uh, with another report on Latin America in general and Brazil in particular. Um, I know you always have some pretty heavy duty insights and observations to make as a true journalist. So let's, uh, let's just let you launch. Um, Let's first ask him, uh, since he came back for a visit to the homeland here, up there in Chicago, uh, he's been traveling around the states, and I'd love to get a little, your take on uh, what you think of the U.S., of Chicago, of Ithaca, of Syracuse, and anywhere else you might have been, and how that contrasts to your life down there in Brazil. Well, I... Uh... I haven't spent this much time in the U.S. since the 1990s, right? Wow. And so I, uh, some of it's kind of shocking. I think a lot of, it look, just looks like a lot of people in the U.S. have just lost their minds completely in a bunch of different ways, you know? Like I was in the supermarket yesterday and I saw they're selling dark chocolate hummus, you know? <laughs> I'm just like wondering what's going on. This consumerism, you know, like. I want to get some. You can't get in my neighborhood where I grew up in Chicago, you used to be able to get all these really good German beers on tap and things like that. And now it's all microbrew. It's all like IPA, which to me tastes like you're sucking on a pine cone after drinking about three of them. And, uh, you know, uh, the, it seems like in the post-industrial era in the United States, the only thing really moving the economies of all these cities I've been to is like the real estate industry and real estate speculation. So it's just outrageous that, you know, it's outrageous. I grew up in a neighborhood that was a working class neighborhood at the time on the north side. My father bought our house in 1976 for $30,000. And it was recently sold for like, you know, $2 million. Long after my family lost. Too bad you didn't keep the house. Yeah, I know. It was a long story, that, but... <laughs> Would take I have a whole time to explain. Story. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so so the, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, well, we could get back. That that was an interesting thing that you said that the whole country seems to be running on real estate. I, there's <laughs> other things that I was thinking you were going to say, um, and that escaped me now. So oh, I well. won't go oh, there. No. no, I know, I know. <laughs> it's my 70-year-old brain. Um okay, after your impressions about your old home, the U.S., um, 
let's go back to Brazil and what's going on there. We just finished doing a report right before we brought you on, on our situation with COVID mm -hmm. and the, uh, the gap between those that have and those that have not is actually showing up with vaccin vaccinations as well. Um, what's the situation in, in Brazil now with COVID? You were well, um, you know, in 2016, the Obama administration supported the coup against Dilma Rousseff, and we haven't had a real rule of law since then. They unjustly arrested the leading candidate in the 2018 elections with support from the US Department of Justice, the Trump administration, to put Bolsonaro in power. And since he took power, he basically just copied Donald Trump on everything. He loved Donald Trump. So Brazil is the country that most copied Donald Trump's COVID approach. Um, you know, when the FDA banned the use of chloroquine for COVID, Trump sent 2 million doses of it down to Bolsonaro. And Bolsonaro government is still insisting that you don't need to wear masks. Uh, you don't need to socially distance. And, uh, you know, if you take chloroquine, you'll be cured. And so there's still 2,000 people dying a day in Brazil. Brazil has about two-thirds of the population of the U.S. And there's this ongoing uh, Senate investigation into corruption in the vaccine policy, you know? And they found out that the Bolsonaro administration paid a holding company in Singapore um, 10 times more than the price per dose that was listed for this Indian um, vaccine that hasn't even finished third stage testing yet called Covaxin, uh, and that they were just kicking back money. Uh, and so yesterday, and, and the people who were running the health department this time were the military, because B Bolsonaro appointed 17 military generals to top cabinet positions. And um, yesterday, the military threatened the Senate because the Senate made its first arrest in this fraud investigation. And it, it looks like a lot of top military implicated. And so the military threatened the Senate and Congress and said they're going to... Um, there are going to be repercussions if they try to, um, you know, try any members of the military in this scandal. And they already supported the Supreme, they already threatened the Supreme Court in 2018 on the eve of Lula's arrest, um, you know, which um, caused uh, one of the uh, Supreme Court justices to flip her vote so they could open an exception to the Constitution to arrest him before he'd been his appeals process had tried out and remove him from the elections. So it looks like we're on the verge. Some people are saying the military has been running things since Bolsonaro took power, really. Uh, but things could go either way at this moment because Lula is getting more and more popularity. If the elections were held tomorrow, he'd win by 30 points, according to the polls. It, didn't he recently get released? No, he was released like a year and a half ago. Oh, okay. What happened recently is all the convictions against him ah. were overturned because of felony judicial bias. And the judge who did that, Sergio Mori, is now hiding in, in Washington, DC. I bet, I bet. Know, to avoid conviction. But so we're at a kind of crossroads in Brazil right now uh, as to whether democracy is really gonna like return or if the military is gonna clamp down like it did in 1968, um, four years after the initial coup, when it started throwing labor activists and things like that in jail and assassinating them. That's so it's, you know, yes. Brian, you, you talked about the U.S. involvement in the coup. Could you give our readers just a little hint on that? I, I had uh, 
suspected that, but I'm taking your word as confirmation. And I okay. love that Michael calls our listeners readers because I'm sure they all are. <laughs> yeah. It's not to us. It's good to read, it's good to listen, and it's good to watch. Well, there's a law called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which any um, country that that enters this treaty related to Foreign Corrupt Practices Act opens autonomy within their you know, territory for the FBI to act on um, corruption investigations in partnership with local prosecutors. So this anti-corruption operation called Lava Jato or Operation Car Wash started in 2015 as a partnership between the US Department of Justice and the, a small group of local public prosecutors in a city called Curitiba, where none of the crimes Lula was accused of had ever taken place. So we now know through leaks that were revealed by this hacker. First of all, the DOJ has been publishing information on its website about its partnership in Lava Jato since 2015. It was never a secret or anything. It was just not mentioned in the US media very much or ever really. Um, they collected over $3 billion in fines from Brazilian companies in the Southern New York court district uh, through this Operation Lava Jato or Car Wash. The DIG, DOJ was involved in it. So the partnership is public knowledge, but when this hacker um, uncovered six terabytes of, of um, social media conversations between the prosecutors and the judge, some of the things they uncovered was that a group of FBI agents, 16 FBI agents led by Leslie Bakshis was meeting illegally according to Brazilian law with the prosecutors every 15 days for five years, including the time that um, Lula was elected. And the subject of the meetings was like advice on how to put Lula in jail and, and guarantee that the workers party wouldn't come back into power. So, it's, so now there's a Senate uh, congressional inquiry led by Hank Johnson from Georgia, signed by like 20 members of the Progressive Caucus to the DOJ demanding that they clarify their role in Lula's imprisonment. You know, so that's, that's a, the short version of the answer to that question. But the, you know, what's curious about that is that it was the FBI instead of the CIA who usually does, you know, out of, exactly, right? out of country baloney. Well, on the day Lula was arrested, the prosecutor, Dalton Dolignal, sent a, me a message on Telegram to all the other prosecutors saying this is a gift from the CIA. So we're pretty sure the CIA was also involved, but I don't have the material proof that the CIA was involved, but there's a mountain of material proof that the, um, that the FBI and DOJ were involved. Uh, and in fact, those telegram messages have been admitted as court evidence in Brazil by the Supreme Court. And so it's actual real material evidence, the, the DOJ involvement in FBI and all of that. You know, Brian, you, you did mention Lula and that if he ran today, he'd be 30 points ahead. Uh, just a little bit more on the kind of divide and who, you know, what ethnic groups, what regions are uh, tend to go left and what are our real chances down there for some change, even with the FBI and the Department mm -hmm. of Justice helping out the bad guy? Well, the, the key is just that there's fair elections next year, you know, so I think it's important for Americans to pressure their congressmen, you know, uh, to deepen the investigation into the DOJ and also to guarantee that there are free and fair elections in Brazil next year, because Bolsonaro is threatening not to respect the results. You know, he's trying to turn it to paper vote, which would be ridiculous. 
Um, I think that's the that's really the key right now. So Brian, given that we're we're moving on to our next guest real quickly here, can can we ask if you would give us advice on what would be good news sources for people, our listeners and viewers to know in order to stay abreast of what you've just told us, uh, not just Brazil, but all over Latin America? Do you know of? Well, okay. Um, for Brazil, there's Brazil Wire. It's a, it's a website that I'm the co-editor of. We've published over a hundred articles about US DOJ involvement in Lula's political imprisonment and Lava Jato. And now I'm gonna pull up the name uh, there's a, an agency from, um, from Bolivia, which is uh, run by the Bolivian Coca uh, Growers Union. It's called, hold on, I just got a... That's all right. It's called Kawashan News, and it's in English, and they have video, and they report about other things around um, Latin America, K-A-W-A-C-H-U-N news there's venezuela analysis from venezuela uh -huh. which i recommend a lot what's and that one? venezuela venezuela analysis okay and um in general i work for telesur so for tv news i recommend telesur english yeah uh you know yeah uh, it's it's sponsored it's a multilateral uh news station 24 hours that was established by Hugo Chavez as an a socialist alternative to CNN. And it's funded by the governments of Argentina, Bolivia, um, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua. And so for uh, another take on Latin America, that's a good place to watch, watch TV news. Well, that, these are good uh, tips because I, I just got a new smart TV for Father's Day and it allows me to look at Al Jazeera and to at Reuters and some new stuff that I don't usually get. They have mm -hmm. a lot of little segments and it just is kind of opening up my awareness of a lot of things. And I'm going right for Brazil Wire and uh, Kawa Chong, however you pronounce yeah. it, mm -hmm. Venezuela Analysis and Telesur. This is great, thank you. All right, cool. And just one more thing, the problem with a lot of left reporting on Latin America these days is that NED, the National Endowment for Democracy has started funding pro-US supported regime change uh, arguments made by Trotskyists, Trotskyist intellectuals. So there's all these trots now infiltrating the left media, arguing why like Evo Morales was bad for the environment, why they need regime change in Nicaragua, you know, why they need regime change in, in Venezuela from a left perspective. And it just confuses everybody. And I think it's weakened solidarity with the organized labor unions and social movements that make up the Latin American left. When are you going home to Brazil? And I want to know because we're going to have you back on when you gather some more news. Yeah, um, I'm thinking, I'm trying to spend the whole summer in Chicago. Ooh, well, we might you. be back. We might be leaving in August. It depends. <laughs> Great. Well, I hope to uh, bump into you. Maybe we can make that happen. All right. Thanks a lot, you guys. I always remember so the summer I worked as a busboy at Heartland Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows what uh, will happen in the future? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Peace to you and yours, Brian. Thanks a Thank lot. Us, Thanks a lot, guys.
are back. That was John Coltrane that we were listening to just then. And we are so happy to uh, welcome back a Chicagoland native, uh, the general manager of Bozy State Public Radio, the NPR member station in Idaho. And prior to that, somebody who founded Marfa Public Radio in uh, Texas, West Texas, and a Loyola grad, here we are on Loyola Radio, who competed in track and field and cross country under the tutelage of our Olympics correspondent, Gordon Thompson. Welcome back, Tom Michael. Katie, it's good to be back. Hello, Michael. Good to see you, brother. You know, I have been following you on Instagram and I was uh, taken, uh, my attention was grabbed when you talked about running uh, 200 and some odd miles, crying and crawling on the way. And you have filled me in on some details why don't you tell us a little bit about your participation in the Boise Trails Challenge? It's a month-long uh, challenge to compete by bike or run a couple hundred miles. Tell us about it and what it was like and why you were crying and why you were crawling. Oh, you bet. Yeah. So, and this also speaks to probably the percentages of public land out here in the, in the Mountain West that we can talk about. But it's an athletic event called the Boise Trails Challenge. Um, a challenge to run more than 200 miles of the foothills trails. I completed it in 10 days uh, on foot. Um, most run, try it by bike. There's about a thousand participants. Um, the, the, the fastest foot finisher was a woman who completed it in five days. <laughs> and it's not the distance, it's really the elevation. They call, they, they call these things Everesting. When you get to the height of Mount Everest, well, this was above that, you know, cumulatively almost 40,000 feet of elevation. And there's a beautiful trail system outside of Boise um, that's protected, you know, um, uh, the city got land grants, the county got land grants to protect it. And so there's miles of trails and it's, it's one of the features of uh, life in the West uh, are these public lands. And, you know, the, 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 the crying and the crawling is because it's hard, especially in middle age to do, uh, to do the pounding of running. But I was the fifth male finisher, really excited about that. And some of it's just logistics or wayfinding, you know, um, and also taking some time off work, <laughs> which I took some vacation to do. But uh, running is great. You know, ever since my days at Loyola, it's an affordable sport. Anyone can pick it up. Um, it's not for everyone. Uh, but for those who do it, it's uh, it kind of focuses the mind. I'll, I'll tell you one quick story. When the pandemic started, I managed about 25 people. When the pandemic started, going out on a trail to run was out by yourself was one of the few places you could go. And it really helped to dust the cobwebs away and, and kind of focus the mind. So pretty therapeutic in that regard. Um, is, there, is there a community? I assume there is a community of trail runners that help one another stay on the trail and keep their spirits up, et cetera. I know that when we did marathoning, uh, of course that was part of it, it was the, a group experience. And That's really true. And you know, now social media makes it easier. Easier. Social media can be used for good or evil, as we all know. There's this app called Strava, where you can kind of motivate yourself and give thumbs up to your friends who are out running. There is this great trail community, Katie, and there's this great story about a biker who was running out of water. And this other biker came along and got the filter out and scooped water out of the creek and kind of saved the biker. I remember some time I was, this is pre-COVID, I was coming down from a hill, I had totally out of water. And I saw another, uh, a cyclist, and I said, I really could take a draw off your uh, camel's back if you'd let me, I'm just <laughs> totally. So there is this great um, community of trail runners um, that really wanna protect it. And, and here's, here's a, a point, political point about public lands. 
So if you look at all the state land percentage in the, in the, in the country, Idaho ranks fourth. It has the fourth most public land. I think the Fed zone, maybe 60% of public land. Um, and it's one of those things that unites different groups. So you'll go to an event and you'll see people wearing camo, hunters and such. And then you'll see people wearing Patagonia brands, you know, bird watchers and such. And it's one of those few things that unite people politically uh, here in Idaho and in the West. Wow, that's, that's a really positive thing to hear. You know, uh, long distance running is something I've never done more than a marathon. Uh, but, uh, you know, I always liked the, the stories and what I knew about the Tarahumara Indians in northern Mexico. I wondered if they were an inspiration to you and what you know about them. Yeah, you bet. Um, when that book came out, Chris McDougall, I think his name is, he called it Born to Run. It kind of popularized barefoot running or neutral running. Um, and he pointed to the Tarahumara Indians in Copper Canyon in northern Mexico. Right. For a long time, when I lived in Texas, I lived on the border of that community, Chihuahua, Mexico. Um, and so the Copper Canyon was a place where a lot of folks from my region of West Texas would vacation. And so the Tarahumara, um, there's another name for that indigenous group that escapes me now, I think the Gurami, um, yes. were excellent runners. They'd go up into the hills and make their hand sandals. There's a race every year now, you know, that uh, a lot of the folks from the U.S. come and participate in. And a friend of mine's going this this year. So I handed off all my books about the Copper Canyon, the indigenous tribes there. Um, but it's really, it's, they, you know, the idea of the natural running, I think, was born was born there. You know, I first heard about them when I was in Mexico in 1962, and I had a professor who talked about them. And what he said is in 1932, the Mexican government brought uh, members of the Tarahumara for the Olympic trials, and they didn't do that well. And what they said was it wasn't long enough. <laughs> Too short. <laughs> right. I... I... Yeah, what, when we were all running, when did they stop calling what you're doing ultra marathoning? <laughs> oh, right. Well, ultra running, um, distance running. You know, I'm a natural, as Coach Gordon Thompson, your Olympic correspondent, will tell you, I'm just a middle distance runner. But to participate in community events as an adult, middle-aged adult, you, you kind of have to get into long distance running. But yeah, we okay. call it ultra running now, I think. Okay. So um, to switch uh, topics for a moment, um, what about the heat wave going on out there? Um, are, are fears bigger than usual um, for a, a bigger fire season? Um, oh, absolutely. In fact, yeah. there's already a fire. Um, I have a friend who just got off the Salmon River. He texted me last night and said no. uh, the Dixie wildfire plume was pretty huge. I have a friend in public television who was supposed to fly in there to do some reporting and um, can't get in. So the heat wave was extraordinary. And I'm sure nationally you heard the stories about Portland, Seattle, Spokane, but even in Boise, which is normally hot, we were about to hit a record of 10 days in a row of 100 degrees. Wow. Um, we had a daily record on Tuesday, 107 degrees. I had a flat tire. I was at the tire shop. I was standing out in the sun and I thought, this feels a little otherworldly. And, you know, it's the scientists have linked it to climate change. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. It's uh, We've got a cold front today. It's only a 97, but we're going to get back to the hundreds over the weekend. Jeez. Uh, let's talk about the political divide in your state. Uh, I would think there are a lot more uh, people of a liberal bent moving in from other places like California. Um, I remember 
back in the old days at Berkeley, I met a guy who'd been hit out in the 50s when the McCarthyites were after him. Uh, and he was a leftist and he had gone to Idaho. Uh, now we hear of guys like Eamon Bundy is going to run for governor. Uh, you know, and he, speaking of, uh, you know, public lands, he's someone who wanted to use them for his own grazing, his own needs. Tell us a bit about the split and what's happening in, in Idaho. What should we expect? What are we looking forward to or looking forward to not looking forward to? Sure. Well, and a lot of people, uh, Idaho is relatively a low population state. A lot of people describe it as center right. Uh, I think the difference is the legislators, especially in the House, in the uh, excuse me, the, the state house, uh, tend to be further extreme. There's something called closed primaries, which they have on the Republican side that they don't have on the Democratic side that have kind of pushed people further to the edges. Um, you mentioned California in migration to Idaho, and that certainly uh, has been the story. Over the last five years, Californians made up about 50% of migration to Idaho. And I wouldn't say, though, that this is a left California. Yeah or a right California, there's quite a lot of mix um, of that. And I, we haven't totally put our finger on it, um, but um, Boise's drifted a little bit, I guess, leftward, but this state has um, elected, uh, you know, Republican candidates for uh, uh, president for, you know, 50 years. Republican candidates for governor, I think since 1994, when they had Democratic governors prior. So definitely um, politically has, has leaned that way. You mentioned Ammon Bundy. Um, there's somebody who uh, is very good at, um, I don't know, marketing in a lot of ways. Um, he seems to be in the center of a lot of things, whether it was anti-masks, anti-vaccine. Uh, it is part of that, as you said, Michael, that sagebrush rebellion uh, about ranchers, you know, kind of um, getting disgruntled about federal land policy. That goes back to the 70s and 80s. Yeah. So it still lives here. And it's a pretty nuanced debate here. Uh, but yeah, Ammon Buddy running for governor. I have friends in media who, who feel like he's almost got a publicity stunt every other week. But, um, but yeah, no, he's definitely a national figure that we cover. You know, I think I heard that um, the funding for Boise State Radio, which you're head of, uh, only won by one vote in the legislature. And I'm just wondering how uh, the political situation is affecting your job and how well, you report things and what you report. This is such a big story. Um, certainly we have a firewall between our editorial and, and any other part of the university, but just a correction. It was Idaho State, uh, excuse me, Idaho Public Television that's directly appropriated by the state. They were to get $5 million in funding, which they've gotten year after year after year. And this year they got that funding by one vote. Um, and it was surprising. Now on the public radio side, we're a different entity, Boise State Public Radio, and our license is held by the university, Boise State University. But this is an interesting story. And if you have access, there was a really long feature piece in the Chronicle of Higher Ed just uh, a couple of days ago about our university president. So you, new president, grew up in rural Wyoming. She uh, led University of Santa Cruz for a while. And she comes to um, Idaho. And um, Higher Ed has a target on its back. Um, there was a move to defund higher ed, especially this university, by more than a million dollars. And that, that went through. We had our budgets cut as well, um, perhaps unrelated. But a lot of it was this discussion, which you see in other states about critical race theory. And 
uh, conservative legislators believing that higher ed is indoctrinating our children. So, you know, you've seen this in other right-leaning states, but it really played out here and it had some real consequences to um, our public state universities. Wow, uh, that's, <laughs> that's upsetting to hear. Um, let me ask another related question. Uh, what about the status of vaccinations in your uh, state? What, what's your... What's the population of Idaho, roughly? Um, I think it's uh, uh, 1.2 million. I'll have to look okay. that up. Do you um, know the percentage of vaccinated people yet? I do. We had a story on NPR about exactly a month ago, uh, June 9th. And our reporter said Idaho's vaccination rate was in the bottom 10 among states. So even before COVID, we had parents um, who opted out of vaccinating their kids in many districts yeah. for the other usual stuff. Right. But uh, I just looked at the stats, Katie, and for 12 and up, at least one dose uh, in Idaho is 48%. That's compared to 64 nationally. And for 65 and up, you know, where we, the country is doing great, 88% nationally, Idaho has 77%. And just yesterday, you know, there are different reasons. There's a fellow who lives across the street, I hope if this is okay, I'm talking about it, that, um, you know, doesn't want to get the, the vaccination. A military vet, and he just says, doesn't have time. Um, there's a woman who came into our house, uh, uh, who I just met for the first time, who said she didn't want to get it. And I think, you know, and Michael, you taught me this years ago. It's, it's having that conversation that maybe even peer pressure, asking why, understanding the reasons. So this is interesting, Katie. Um, we have some friends in town from Texas, and one of them is a health practitioner in the county I used to live in, Presidio County. And for rural Texas, this guy who's a PA, got 85% vaccinated in his county. You know, it's a, a heavily Latino border, borderland county. Mm. And a lot of it was that peer-to-peer -peer conversations. Yeah. He would talk to patients about the book of Revelations. <laughs> he talked to patients about other kind of cultural obstacles. Huh. So um, it's real. And I think it's, um, it's, uh, it's not just the usual reasons. Yeah. Well, that's, that's completely fascinating. Uh, thank you for that. And I think we're going to end this segment uh, with a weed report. Uh, okay. You live next door to a legal weed state, which is Washington. How has that affected uh, trends and life all across the border in Idaho? Uh, are there police waiting on the border to bust people who go across? What's happening out there? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is really is a holdout state. Um, as you know, Utah is a heavily Mormon state. We do, uh, in Idaho, there is some kind of Mormon influence as well, percentage-wise. And it's surrounded by states that have some sort of, um, you know, uh, legal cannabis in some sort of way, even Canada, right? So um, there was a debate uh, about hemp here even. Um, that was interesting. Uh, there is, they call this valley the Treasure Valley in Boise, and Oregon is only 30 miles away. So the pot shop, in um, Ontario, Oregon, you can see a lot of Idaho license plates there, I think. <laughs> wow. Well, thanks. We're out of time because we have a packed show, but thank you so much for coming on again. Uh, we really appreciate it, Tom. Katie, great to talk to you. Great to see you again, Michael. And yeah, thanks for, for it, allowing me to talk about the West on your show. Is there a web link for your radio station? Yeah, yeah. you bet. BoiseStatePublicRadio.org. I launched a public affairs show called Idaho Matters and a regional news group called the Mountain West News Bureau. So please check it out if you're interested. Yeah, it's always good listening to you. You're the, I've always been impressed with you, not only for your running and your just 
General Bean, but you interviewed me once for a class and it was the most accurate interview I think I ever did. And you never took a note. You did it all just right up here. So you're the man. All right, thanks all. Thank you very much. Peace, bye peace bye. and blessings. Well, we are gonna take a station break and we're gonna to listen to a little Jimmy Cliff and we'll be right back with another guest. You can get it if you really want You can get it if you really want You can get it if you really want But you must try, try and try, try and try You'll succeed at last mm -hmm. Persecution, you must be a You've got to get your share Got your mind set on a dream I'm so happy to hear Jimmy Cliff. I love that whole album. Okay, just uh, quickly before our uh, special Olympic report, we've got a couple of events to remind you. Today is the Flats and Sharp Music Fest, 12 noon to 10 p.m., Columbia Avenue at Sheridan Road. Also, for some of you, you might remember a beautiful man that was on our show and was a friend of ours forever, um, Dan McNeil. We lost him a year ago to COVID. And this afternoon at Rogers Park Beach from 3.30 to 5.30, Dan McNeil will be remembered and celebrated in song and word. Uh, finally, the Rogers Park Block Clubs will be doing their second cleanup of the season today for information on how to participate with today's neighborhood cleanup and how to join your block club. Reach out to the Alderwoman's Office, 773-338-5796. Now let's hear some appropriate music for Gordo. Dun, dun, da, da, dun, dun, dun. Here you are, Gordo, from live from Delaware. Hey, what do you know, Chicago? Good to have uh, all you guys in uh, the Chicago land area. Time to hear about uh, what you think what's going on with the Olympics. This is your your uh, sports report for us. Well, Michael tipped me off. He wanted to focus on the disqualification of uh, Shakari uh, Richardson, which I think is. Uh, a real travesty in sports. Uh, just a little bit of background on this young lady. Miss Richardson won the 100 meters at the Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon, uh, and then um, was notified of her natural mother's death uh, after winning. And since in this, this was competition was in the state of Oregon, 
where uh, cannabis is legal, she, in response to no being notified that her mom just passed away, ingested, had an edible, and then subsequently tested positive and uh, is out of the Olympic Games. And um, this young lady, that's a crime for her uh, to be out of the Olympic Games. A little bit of background, she's a recently graduated from LSU, Louisiana State University, won the 100 meters. The team, LSU won the team title uh, at the most recent NC2A Outdoor Track Championship. And uh, her coach is no rookie. Dennis Shavers has been around this business a long, long time and well-respected. And so she's in good good hands with, with a good coach and counseling. But uh, let me just say that the International Olympic Committee, and then uh, more importantly, WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency, needs to get a clue by having this non-performance enhancing substance on the drug list. Yeah. So uh, USA Today says Shakiri Richardson out because of positive drug test. Well, hey, this is a natural substance, isn't it? And when I think of drugs, I think of something uh, made in the lab, pharmacological. And uh, this absolutely is a mental health issue. And Katie, I'm going to ask you, since uh, you're more up on this than Michael is, Katie, can you think of a avenue in business or entertainment or anything in the world where mental health is given the same equal play as physical health. Can you think of any? Um, uh, I don't exactly know what you mean, but I think no is the answer. <laughs> no is the answer. There is not mental health worldwide and in our uh, Western medicine paradigm is not equally treated or not fairly treated because you can't, it's not readily seeable. You can't see if a person is really hurting unless they have a scowl on my, on their face like me, cause I'm hurting. <laughs> and, but uh, you got to believe that when a person says uh, inside, I need help that they mean it and uh, that it's real and that, they should be consulted to a professional. And that when this young lady Richardson, through the stress of losing her mom, ingested an edible to make her feel good or to make her feel, you know, whatever, um, it's, it should not be part of the international world anti-doping act. Gordo, do you predict that this law will get changed or this rule in, in the international athletic bodies? Well, it'll eventually get changed, yeah, because the, uh, the IOC and the World Anti-Doping Agency will get a clue, but it'll be too late for Miss Richardson. She would have she won the gold. This is costing her not just a couple of dollars, but potentially uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions in endorsements and so forth. So, Okay, just before we go, Gordo, um, we've got to ask you, um, the latest stuff from Japan says that they're they're really going to be very serious about keeping people away from the games. Can you uh, catch us up on the latest on that score? 
Yeah, this past Thursday, uh, they made an announcement. No fans will be attending the, the games. Not uh, It was originally just going to be Japanese uh, nationals that were going to be able to. So they have a vaccination rate of under 15%. It's climbing now. Uh, it was 5 or 10% a couple weeks ago, but it's up to about 13% in the state in the country of Japan, which is too few. So no fans and maybe just IOC, um, you know, the big wigs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, the, with the money. Hey, mm-hmm. this Olympic Games is going to make $5 billion just off of TV rights. So they really didn't need the actual physical people in the stands to, to carry it through. This Olympic Games is all about money. That's why it's going to happen. The people in Japan don't want it to happen, and the athletes are a little bit unsure, but the athletes are ready ready to go. It's going to be a great deal. It's going to start on July the 18th through August the 23rd. Let's rip it. All right. Okay, we're well, going we'll to have you back. <laughs> I was just going to say, we'll have to have you back while it's going on. Hey, take care of yourself, man. Get we'll some acupuncture. Thanks a lot. Right. Okay, as we close out, uh, we're in memoriam on uh, two people. Uh, there's Ralph Davis, who played at St. Benedict High School and then went off. He was a recruit by our friend uh, uh, Russ Bradbird, and he was part of the UTEP teams. Uh, I think 1991, he went to the final uh, 16. Uh, he passed away, and the reports I got were that anyone in basketball in Chicago, former pros, a lot of people, Everyone was there. So rest in peace, Ralph Davis. And then Anthony Porter, uh, who was uh, imprisoned on a, for a murder charge, was later uh, let out of prison uh, by was, Governor was, George Ryan. No, he was not let out of prison. They fought like heck to get his, uh, his conviction vacated. That's okay. He was, was wrongly convicted. And it, his case is what... George Ryan used to put an end to executions in Illinois. And later we had Anthony Porter visit at the Heartland. We actually but, had him the day he got out of prison. Uh, it was in 1999. He came yeah. to the Heartland on a, and talked. Well, rest in peace, Anthony. I know it was a rough life for you. We're going to go out with Twin Peaks like we often do. For the last 24 years or more, we've brought you live from the Heartland, now Heartland at Home, broadcast every Saturday morning, 9 a.m., Central on Chicago's WLUW 88.7 FM. It streams live from WLUW.org. And we are archived on our channel at youtube.com slash heartlandmedia and cablecast all week long on Can TV channel 27. We thank, we thank our team, which is little now this week. It's Gwen, Gwen Brown and us this week. Thank you and thank you all for listening. Please continue to do good in the world. The world needs all the good that we do. All power to the people. people.
Hey.